I would invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 553. We're considering the first 11 verses of this chapter together this morning. Let's hear now from God's Word. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than all who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." This is the word of our Lord. The book of Ecclesiastes is quite an amazing book. It's a book that fits into that category of Old Testament wisdom literature. And before we give our attention to the content of this passage, I think it's helpful to point out a few things about wisdom literature in general, and second, how Ecclesiastes fits into that category of wisdom. So how can we grow in our understanding of wisdom? Well, we all know that life is not easy. You're probably sick of public opinion polls. It doesn't take a public opinion poll to tell you that. Nobody is immune to the complexities of relationships or circumstances. Maybe you're the kind of person who wakes up on a Monday morning and you think about all of the tasks that lay ahead of you in the day or in the week ahead all the complex tasks that require decisions, tasks that involve relationships and, and choices, and you don't even know where to begin. And if, weren't, if it weren't for the anxiety that seemed to overwhelm you, you would just roll over and go back to sleep. The Bible never says that the one who follows the Lord will have an easy life. If anything, there are passages in Scripture that indicate the opposite. So how do we handle problems in life? How should we handle the inevitable disappointments that creep into our lives? How do we deal with difficult people in uncomfortable situations? What do we say and how should we act? How do we know when to speak and when to refrain from speaking? The way in which we navigate through the complexities of this life requires wisdom. And wisdom is a rich 
rich concept, and it really gets at the skill of living. Wisdom is an extremely practical thing for us to possess. One pastor put it like this, wisdom helps us to know how to act and how to speak in different situations. Wisdom entails the ability to avoid problems and the skill to handle them when they present themselves. Wisdom includes the ability to interpret other people's speech and writing in order to react correctly to what they are saying to us. And so wisdom requires discernment. It requires discretion. It requires attentiveness not only to our own speech, but attentiveness to the words of others as they speak to us. Wisdom requires patience and kindness and so much more. As we think about the way in which wisdom is described and defined, we can say that wisdom is much beyond simply an increase in IQ. But wisdom has to do with the reflection of the character of the heart, a heart that has been given ultimately to the Lord in humble service to Him. Wisdom has to do with the ability to navigate through this life in a way that is honoring to the Lord. And as people like us who are typically impatient with anything that takes any length of time to get in life, we might think that wisdom is something that can come in just a moment. Maybe I just need to figure out how to ask for it. Maybe I need to borrow one of Pastor McWilliams' old dusty books from his study and discover the hidden secret to wisdom that lies there within, a formula that I can apply to every circumstance in life. But instead, wisdom is something that is a lifelong pursuit. The paradox of wisdom is that the person who thinks that he is wise is really a fool, while the person who understands and is growing in true wisdom understands the foolish tendencies of his own heart. So how does the book of Ecclesiastes offer wisdom to us, a reader, in the 21st century as we come to this ancient text? Well, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that, well, frankly, it's not the most uplifting book to spend time in. At times, it seems to be downright pessimistic. So how is it a book that offers to us hope and wisdom? Well, the way that Ecclesiastes helps us to grow in wisdom you see, as the writer of this book genuinely pursues all that this life has to offer without reference to God and comes up meaningless, you see, failing over and again to find real purpose. And the way that he captures that hopeless pursuit of life is through this phrase that appears frequently throughout the book, everything under the sun is meaningless. What he means by that is simply this, that life without reference, without a relationship to the personal, knowable God of creation, life without Him is absolutely pointless. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes is an apologetic book. That is, it's a book uh, of the defense of the faith of Christianity. And really, it's a book that goes more on the offensive, you could say, It's a book in which he reduces every other worldview in existence to its absurdity by showing the vanity of life without the Lord. What he does is he shows how life without the Lord's redeeming work is hopeless and purposeless. And what he does is he takes on these various worldviews that are offered out there and he lives those things out. You see, this is not some sort of cognitive analysis. This is not some philosophical speculation in which he 
separates himself in an ivory tower somewhere and points out all the logical fallacies of worldviews and points out how they fail to comport with reason. Certainly there's a place for that. But what he does, you see, is he strives to live life without reference to God. But in the end, he has the guts to admit that nothing apart from the Lord has meaning. You see, if your origin is meaningless, if you came from nothing, and if your destiny is just up in the air and you don't know what happens to you after you die, then everything in between is meaningless. But if your origin is as an image bearer created in the image of the Lord, then you understand as well what it means to be redeemed in the Lord Jesus, what awaits for you in Him, then everything in this life has meaning and has purpose. And so either nothing matters or everything matters. And that might sound at first like a simplistic summary of life, but really this is what the book is driving at. Do you have the guts to admit that life without reference to the Lord at every point in life is absolutely meaningless? You see, part of growing in wisdom is learning from others. It's watching the fool and learning from his foolishness. It's watching the one who is wise and learning from his wisdom. It's listening to what wise people have to say to us. Growth and wisdom, you see, is contemplative. It's meditative in its process in which we seek to push aside all of the clamoring voices in the world around us and we give our attention to that which has lasting and eternal value. Even as you sit here this morning, as your mind and your heart perhaps are racing with all of the things that need your attention, in the coming days and weeks ahead. What the truth of God's Word calls is for you to slow down and to allow the loving scalpel of God's Word to cut away the callous portions of your heart and to expose within your heart where you were living for the creation instead of for the Creator. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants from you is to learn from his vain pursuits. Listen to him. Listen to his wisdom that he has to offer. And as the writer of this book goes on and on about all of the different things that he pursues in this life, you are meant to feel the tedious nature of those pursuits. You are meant to consider your own life and where perhaps you have bought into the self deluded pursuits yourself, where you have bought into the foolishness that this life will bring satisfaction and fulfillment. And so part of the message of Ecclesiastes is grow in self-awareness. Grow in awareness of your own heart. Allow the truth of God's Word to act as a mirror to you, showing you what it is that you are really living for and where you need to change. And what we see in these 11 verses of chapter 2 is the vanity of pleasure. Now imagine having your heart's desire. Picture yourself walking on your favorite gulfside beach with your friends or with your family, kicking your toes in the sand, and you come across a genie in a bottle. What would you wish for? You could have anything. Would it be wealth? status and respect, power and influence, popularity or knowledge, success at whatever it is you want to pursue, 
academic success, vocational achievement, musical success, athletic ability, maybe the perfect relationship. We're just a bunch of stuff. Maybe a car that doesn't break down on you all the time. Maybe a house that doesn't leak. Maybe just grass that stays green like it's supposed to. Whatever it might be, of the first thing that comes to mind, what we will see is that these are things that he pursues, and yet he continues to come up empty. You know, world history is filled with stories of people who achieve great levels of success in any area of life that we could possibly imagine, and yet they fail to find ultimate fulfillment and significance. In our own time, we could think of athletes who cheat and who bribe and who threaten and who dope in order to get to the top. We can think of politicians who are blinded by their own power and who are filled with corruption. We can think of people in the entertainment industry who will do just about anything for more fame and more money. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what time in history you live. There is the ever-present deceit of pleasure. And the amazing relevance of this passage is that everything that he pursues are things that people still pursue today that drive us even in our own lives. You see, we sort of have this naive mindset, I think, in which we convince ourselves that just because it didn't work for him, it might work for me. Just because billions of other people have lived in world history and have never found fulfillment and satisfaction in this life doesn't mean that I won't. This, you see, is the foolishness that this passage challenges you. Learn from me, he would say if you were here today. Don't waste your life in such vain pursuits. And yet we see the same areas of deceit all around us where we live, in which the culture around us holds out pleasure as the ultimate goal to life. As Americans, we have more expendable income than any nation in the world. Every year, teenagers spend $170 billion in our country, 80% of which is for non-essential items, entertainment, eating out, clothing. From the time that we are born, and our parents want a few minutes of quiet time, and so they plop us down in front of Saturday morning cartoons, and we watch those commercials, we have it ingrained within us that life is about pleasure. The newest toys, the most recent electronics. I can't believe you don't have an iPhone 5 yet. All of the vain pursuits that the world holds out to us, greater and grander forms of entertainment. And we are told that the goal of life is just to get to the point where you don't work anymore. Work is the evil thing that holds you back from enjoying your life. And so we hold out for the big win. Maybe my company will get bought out. Maybe my bonus this year will be larger than last year because I've been putting in more and more hours. Maybe I'll get a huge inheritance. Maybe I'll win the lottery and I'll finally have enough to bring peace of mind. Work your entire life. Invest wisely, we are told, by the investment commercial so that you can retire at an early age while you still have some life left in you. And don't forget to ask the doctor for all those pills that you should be taking to give yourself an extra boost in life. Why? So that you can finally enjoy your life by not having to work any longer? Why? So that you can sit around in your easy chair and read the paper? Is that the goal of life? Self-indulgent inactivity? 
Why do we think that this ideal of comfort is the way to live? And then there's the deception of entertainment and popularity. Think of all of the reality shows that center around singing and dancing and any other form of entertainment that you could imagine. And I guess since they're reality shows, that means that they could be things that happen to us all, right? All we need to do is follow our dreams and hold out for that one big break. Don't live in the realm of reality. Continue to live in fantasy in which you too can have your 15 minutes of fame. We live in a society which puts more value on entertainment than it does just about anything else. In 2005, a Supreme Court justice earned $200,000. That same year, Judge Judy earned $25 million. It really shows you what we value as a society, doesn't it? We are told that the goal and the purpose of life is basically this. Pursue your own pleasure. And pleasure is whatever you want it to be. That pleasure can be defined according to your own definition as long as you're not hurting someone else in the process. Live for yourself so that you might find satisfaction. You only live once and you better grab all the gusto you can. And if anyone gets in your way, if anyone hinders you from having satisfaction in life, then you have the right to discard that person because he or she or that circumstance is just a speed bump on your road to happiness. We are told that as Americans, we have the inherent right to happiness, not just the right to pursue happiness, but we're told that we have the right to acquire happiness. That's our chief end. That's our goal in life that we deserve, we believe we all deserve. Author David Wells says, this is the Western commercialized culture. Here we have the ability to hope for what we want, shop where we want, buy what we want, study where we want, think what we want, believe what we want, and treat religion as just another commodity, a product to be consumed. Modern consumption, Wells says, is about buying meaning for ourselves. It's about the way we construct ourselves, the vantage point from which we want to look at the world. What was once just a matter of producing goods has become a way of producing meaning. See, for us, the deceit of pleasure is not simply that you should just pursue more and more and more simply for the sake of that pursuit, but the deceit is that in doing so, you will find meaning in life, and life will be good. And here is the timeless relevance of this passage. He pursues pleasure in the same spheres of life that are held out to us as realms of meaning. And so learn from Him. Don't buy into the deceit of the world around us, and don't buy into the deceit of your own hearts. In verse 2, he pursues laughter as a form of pleasure. And we all know that there are different types of laughter, of course. There is humor that takes serious situations and tries to make light of them as a distraction so that we don't have to deal with the harsh realities of life. And that humor may take the form of sarcasm, you know, the type of person who can never be serious about anything. The person who uses humor sort of to deflect dealing with real struggle and disappointment. Maybe laughing dismissively in order to make life lighter because I don't like the way that my life is going. Laughter as a distraction so I don't have to deal with the things that I don't want to address. And then there's humor that delights in the fault of another. We mock and we laugh those who don't think the way that we do, who don't reason like us who don't have the same passions in life or convictions that we do. And so it's a laughter that is demeaning, 
that treats people as less valuable than you. People that you act that you're more superior than because you've thought those things through and they obviously haven't. And let's be honest, I mean, this is especially true in an election year like this, isn't it? Deriding those who think differently than us. Or there's humor that is perverse, saying anything and laughing at anything in order to get the acceptance and approval of another. Now, there are certainly plenty of appropriate times to enjoy life, but you see, the point is, wisdom means considering the motive behind not only your laughter, but your motive behind everything that you do in life. As I consider the motives of my own heart, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Am I looking to give glory to God in all of those things, or am I simply looking to bring satisfaction and indulgence to myself? That should be a driving question behind all that we do. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't laugh, that we shouldn't enjoy life, that we shouldn't even laugh at our own stupidity at times. We're not talking about being a stoic, but what is the motive? What is the purpose behind such laughter? And you know what your motive is. You don't have to think too hard about that. Is it to profit at the expense of another? Is it an attempt to escape just because you don't want to deal with serious things in your own life or in the lives of others? Is it a way to deflect difficulties of life so that I don't have to deal with real matters? And look at his assessment of laughter in verse 2. It is useless. It doesn't accomplish what he thought it would. It doesn't bring lasting pleasure. It might bring distraction for a time, but it doesn't really solve anything substantively. It might feel good for a bit, but in the long run, it's vanity. And it's deceptive because for a time, it makes you think that it's helping you cope with life. You think it's helping you solve problems, but it's really not accomplishing anything. And in verse 3, notice that he pursues the pleasure of wine. And notice there in that verse that as he pursues wine, it's to cheer his body. And as he does so, his heart is still guiding him. And so I don't think in this context that it's a pursuit that seeks to dull his senses, but I think it's more of a pursuit as, as sort of a connoisseur of wine, one who tries to go after the finer indulgences of life, sort of a refined consumption rather than a crass indulgence. And so here I think it's not only looking to substances to provide satisfaction and distraction, but I think there's also an element of pride that is alluded to here, an intellectual puffing up of himself, looking for pleasure in the here and now with no view toward eternity. And then in verses 4 through 6, we read that he makes great works. Here it's all sort of about living the lifestyle of the rich and famous, Stunning homes and vineyards, magnificent gardens and parks, filled with all sorts of trees and plants, beautiful pools of water to keep things lush and green year-round. And he doesn't simply enjoy the indulgence of those things, but notice that he also puts his hand to the task of constructing those things, involved in the architectural design of those structures and those parks and so forth. Perhaps he thinks that that process of designing those things will help bring fulfillment and satisfaction. But then as he faces the reality that those structures will not last, he is driven to see the futility of such pursuits. And notice that he says he builds houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, all in the plural. He didn't try just once and then move on to something else. 
But as the king, he had the resources to engage in those things multiple times in perhaps very different ways. And notice also why he did all of these things. I made great works. I made myself gardens and parks. I made myself pools. I gathered to myself all of these things. Now, these might be things that are built and constructed for others to enjoy in the public realm, but ultimately he knows that he did all of those things to try to bring lasting meaning and significance to his own life. Now, think for a moment of the frequency at which in your own life perhaps you engage in very humble acts of service, serving your spouse, humbly serving your children, but you know that deep in your heart you're really just doing that so that perhaps your children and your spouse will affirm you, will serve you, will give you something back in return, perhaps just so you can feel good about yourself. As much as you might say that you're doing those things for others, it's really about you. But at least the writer of Ecclesiastes has the honesty to admit this. Even though there might be others that enjoy those structures that he built, that might enjoy the gardens that he designs, he knows that he's really doing those things to try to bring fulfillment to himself. And so again, there might be the appearance of true service and care for others in our lives, but in reality, it could be about a self-serving agenda. And he goes on in verse 7, accumulating flocks, servants, perhaps um, slaves and servants around him to care for every one of his needs. You sort of think of the modern equivalent of having a, a chauffeur and a butler, a maid, a cook, a lawn guy. All the resources are at his disposal, you see, to acquire as many people as he wants to do his bidding at any hour of the day or night. And the flocks and the herds that he accumulates are there to add to his wealth and to his status, to supply a safety net for him, perhaps to be used as part of his sumptuous feasts as he draws people in to dine with him. These are all things that are meant to bring him comfort and a sense of stability. And then in verse 8, we read that he surrounded himself with all sorts of wealth. Notice silver and gold. Isn't it interesting? Even 3,000 years ago, he knew that silver and gold was more stable than stock. <laughs> Perhaps he grew in such wealth through trading and commerce, through taxation of his subjects. With such treasure, certainly he would have great security. No worries about finances or future investment. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? With such great wealth, no doubt he was the envy of so many others. As he looks to his wealth to bring him satisfaction, even when that sort of runs its course, at least after a time, he still has the envy of others around him. And maybe that will bring some satisfaction. And then he surrounds himself with musicians and with women. Perhaps the music is yet another form of escape and distraction. Certainly that can be true for us. How often do we fill our lives perhaps with constant noise so that we don't have to deal with the realities of the difficulties of life? Maybe there's the same type of musical refinement here just as there was with the pursuit of wine. The music could be delightful, you see, but when it is seen as something that is an end in and of itself, it doesn't bring satisfaction. And there's a, here, again, this element of pride. 
You see, because as you look at yourself, you're the only one who has the insight and the conviction to delight in this particular type of music. You're the only one who sees the beauty that everyone else doesn't see. They're just stupid. You're insightful. And then there's the pursuit of sexual gratification. As a kingly figure, he could have had any number of exotic women at his disposal. And at the time in which he lived, it would have not been something that would have been looked down upon by his subjects in the kingdom. More sexual partners than anyone could imagine. And the large harem was simply for the purpose of sensual delight and, again, the envy of others. So we could call all of these pursuits, riches, singers, women, the pursuit of meaningful leisure, a hedonistic indulgence, a refined existence, a pursuit of high culture. As you consider all of these things that the king pursued, this is the great temptation in our lifestyle, in our own life. Because let's be honest for a minute. These are all the things that we would want. Everything in chapter 2 is what we would love to have. If we came across that genie on the beach, this is what we would ask for. We all want a life of endless pleasure. We would all love to have unlimited funds to do whatever we want. We would love to have billions of dollars and buy our own island somewhere and have our own private jet that could take us there anytime we wanted. We'd love to have that kind of money and power and influence and freedom. Think of all the little inconveniences of life that would be taken care of. You have your doctor's appointment at 11 o'clock. You're supposed to be there at 1045 to fill out your paperwork, which takes five minutes to fill out. You wait for half an hour, an hour, hour and a half, and then you're moved to another tiny little room in which you have to wait even longer. If I had power and wealth and money, the doctor could come to me. He could wait in my waiting room. And when I'm ready to see him, I'll let him in. It's those types of little inconveniences that we would love to have removed from our life. We would love a world in which everything revolved around our desires and everyone did our bidding. We would love to have someone else do all of those menial tasks in life that we have to do. Well, what do we really want? Well, we want to be king. We want to be queen. And not only do we want everyone to do what we want, but we also want them to want to do what we want. We want them to love us. We want to be adored. We want to be a God. And look at the summary of his pursuits of pleasure in verses 9 through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Whatever this life had to offer in terms of pleasure, he pursued it. He held himself back from nothing of whatever he desired. Again, don't convince yourself that you're different in this area. Don't buy into the lie that, well, maybe he didn't find satisfaction in life because he didn't look in the right places. He didn't have the technology that we do. Maybe he's just a mopey guy and he's not going to find happiness anywhere. Well, that's the deceptive nature of sin within our own hearts. And here's the thing about the pursuit of pleasure. You can convince yourself that any indulgence is acceptable. 
You can convince yourself that that which is evil is actually good. From the abuse of substances, to sex before marriage, to music that is full of sexual innuendo, to movies that are anything but edifying, to the pursuit of more and more stuff that you tell yourself that you need or that you deserve, to the pride and arrogance in your own life because of how much more thoughtful and refined and logical and consistent you are compared to everyone else. And in a split second, you can convince yourself that those things are not that big of a deal, that you deserve them, that you need them, that there's not a problem with you at all. So what do you do when you have everything that you thought you ever wanted and it's still not enough? What do we need? We need the message of Ecclesiastes more in our time than ever. See, either the writer of this book is just a melancholy pessimist, or he has real insight. You see, the reason why all of these pursuits are vain pursuits is alluded to in verse 3, in the phrase, the few days of their life. You see, the reason why nothing in this life will bring satisfaction is because death is the great equalizer. And what's the point of anything if death ends at all? This is why no amount of pleasure, success, status, money, relationships, or anything will bring lasting value and meaning, and meaning because one day death will wipe it all away. And so you can live with distractions. You can fill your life with comfort and pleasure. You can hold out for your own 15 minutes. But in the end, when you're lying on your deathbed, is it really going to matter? And so we need to allow the vanity of this life and the reality of death to drive us to the one alone who can redeem us because he has conquered death. Death no longer has mastery over those who are in the Lord Jesus. And he is the one alone who can save us from the vanity of life under the sun. You see, it's not the dissatisfaction of this life that is meant to drive us further away from the Lord in frustration or in anger. It's not the dissatisfaction of this life that is meant to drive us deeper and deeper into the creation to look somewhere else or look harder in that place where we're looking. But the dissatisfaction of this life should point us toward our need for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from all meaninglessness of this life so that we can actually find purpose in everything. To look for pleasure in this life is not only deceptive, but it's contrary to our design. We were created to live for the Lord of glory, to serve and to worship Him. And when we we exchange that worship of the Lord for the worship of the creation, it's not a matter of ignorance, but it's a matter of willful rebellion against the Lord. And so what wisdom cries out to us from this book is this. Allow the vain pursuits of this life to drive you to your Creator, to the one who offers redemption in His Son. And then, as a redeemed child of God, see with new eyes the good things in this world that God has created, not as ends in and of themselves, but good things that are meant to point us to the one who is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, says James in chapter 1, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, He is the only one who is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He is the only one worthy of our worship and praise and trust and adoration. Jesus says in John 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That you might have life eternal, yes, but that you might have life even now through the work of Christ. And so it is good for us to delight in the good things of this life that God gives to us, to enjoy the creation with a proper perspective, to acknowledge that all things that are filled with goodness, truth, and beauty are things that reflect those attributes in our God. And to remember that this life is not all there is. And there's a sense in which we are meant to be dissatisfied with this life because this is not the end. We are not to pursue pleasure for its own sake, but we are to live with eternity in view. And as we do, we can appropriately enjoy the good things that the Lord has given to us. With an eternal perspective, we can understand that laughter is a good gift from the Lord. We can taste the good things that God has given to us. We can enjoy the beauty of architecture and other fascinating structures We can enjoy the wonder and the variety of His creation that He has given to us to enjoy. There is appropriate pleasure to be found in so many things that the Lord has given to us. Someone has said, you were made with the capacity to be one of the happiest beings in the universe, but you will never find it by living for your own pleasure. You will only find it when you learn to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as a good old Puritan said, Enjoy God in everything. Enjoy everything in God. We can enjoy the goodness of God in everything in life. And in every good thing that we do, we can give thanks to Him. May the Lord be pleased to write the eternal truth of His Word upon our hearts.